Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd, and in this episode, I speak with prolific and prophetic author, Derek Jensen, and activist. He's an eco-philosopher. He speaks from a life-centered rather than human-centered perspective. And this was recorded a good six months before we're making it live. But you'll see that even though it was recorded long before a coronavirus era, Derek's wisdom is more relevant than ever. He's undergone some serious challenges in recent years, and especially the last year. And um, unfortunately, the video, his video had problems. So uh, we're not going to be able to show the video part, but you'll hear his voice and have some pictures. would love to hear uh, just sort of an encapsulation of your more recent work and what's particularly up for you now. Like, what are you passionate about or concerned about um, now in uh, August of 2019? A few ways to go at it. The most personal way is that, um, that uh, the last 18 months have been, have been hell. Um, my mom, with whom I was very close, uh, was diagnosed with cancer, and then I took care of her, pretty much sole caretaker, until she died in November. And then uh, in March, I had emergency open heart surgery, and uh, I've been recovering from that. And, oh my gosh! Um, and uh, then also I lost uh, three publishers. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's been a, it's been a tough year. Um, and what I've been working on, I have, I have two books that are circulating right now. Um, one of them is about uh, generally a war that has been fought for the soul of anarchism, about between those who understand. The governments exist by and for the wealthy primarily, which is almost everybody. You know, when I used to do big talks, I asked lots and lots of people over the years, do you believe the government takes better care of human beings or corporations? And we would laugh and say, of course, corporations. So almost everybody has that understanding that governments take better care of corporations and human beings. But then there's a subset of anarchists who, um, who believe that just because rules are made by and for those in power, laws are made by and for those in power, therefore all social restrictions must be taken away from their behavior. So this group, which is actually quite large um, and has been emboldened by postmodernism and queer theory, believes, for example, that, um, I mean, the, the anarchism, the anarchy, a journal of desire armed, uh, has militantly promoted pedophilia, um, there can be no restrictions on people's behavior, um, which of course goes, and they call this liberating, but of course they would because they're the ones who are the perpetrators and they don't understand that this is the core of patriarchy and this is the core of why this culture has been destroying the planet for right. the last several thousand years. It's a refusal to acknowledge limits on your behavior. And um, this... <laughs> The sheet is up here. Uh, the people can't hear it. There's a sheet behind me, if, if you can see the visuals. Um, and that's up there because there are a lot of, and I can't say the word because the dogs will get very excited, B-A-R-S around. 
And um, just earlier this year, the just it's one reason I was a couple minutes late is because there was one out there right now and I needed to put the sheet in. <laughs> female had a baby earlier this year who was killed by a male. And so a friend of mine did some research into this and it ends up that under normal circumstances, when they're not ecologically stressed, um, bears uh, will, normally the males will kick away the yearlings to bring the female into estrus. Mm -hmm. Traumatic, but it's not deadly. Right. But, but what I recently learned is that when they have normal social structures in place, the females have territory, males will have sort of a meta territory and the big old male will keep all the youngsters in line and won't let them do this. And so when through hunting, through habitat destruction, that all gets messed up, what happens is younger males run amok. Yeah. My point, a couple points here. One is we've seen this with elephants. We've seen this with a lot of other species. I mean, that's just another way that humans are messing everything up. And then also, um, it's just the absurdity of this, this position taken by so many anarchists and taken by pro-technology people too, that there can be no limits on our behavior. Everybody understands the importance of limits. William R. Catton certainly understood it. So that's one thing I'm working on. Another thing I'm working on is right now we're circulating a book called Bright Green Lies that is about how wind and solar won't save the planet. They're not in fact helpful for the planet. And not only that, but they wouldn't even run an industrial economy. And we right. can talk about either of those if you want. And then right now, both of those books are done and looking for homes. And the book I'm working on right now is a book on stopping uh, rape culture. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's another book I'm working on too, which is um, about uh, how marijuana legalization has been not about freeing the sacred herb, as they like to put it, <laughs> but instead has been about... Uh, transferring wealth away from family farmers and to uh, large corporations. Yeah, yeah and exactly. Basically, the short version is that illegality created a barrier to entry that uh, was really a barrier to economies of scale. So if you're Ill illegal, you know, you can, you can grow in your backyard, you can grow, you know, acre plot, two acre plot, whatever, but if it's legal, then you can have rows of greenhouses in Santa Barbara, which they do. Mm -hmm. And that takes a lot of money as opposed to, I live in Northern California and know lots of people who've, who've grown and it might cost for a small, very small operation, might cost $10,000 turnkey. And that's, that's a totally different level of investment than, you know, the, the, I was talking to a guy who, who helps legal businesses get started. And he said, if you don't have $250,000 cash in the bank, don't even bother starting. Yeah. Right. Wow. So that's, those are the things I'm working on. Got it. Well, when you say, uh, first of all, I just want to uh, thank you for telling me the more personal side. I hadn't heard that your mom died and uh, I did, hadn't heard that you had had open heart surgery. So those are fucking enormous. Um, and when you say you had three publishers, I forget whether you said die or leave or whatever, like what does that mean practically? 
Well, they severed their relationship with me. And they severed their relationship with me over just a completely crazy issue that is sweeping the world right now. Um, but, but, well, the short version is they severed their relationship with me because of my solidarity with women. Because I sometimes fear for human sentience. I, oh, I'm not yeah. entirely sure that we're sentient because every time we take a good idea, we turn it into the stupidest possible thing. And this is an example of that. The postmodernism emerged from uh, the, the understanding that the stories we tell are, uh, are, are that the winners tell stories in wars. Mm -hmm. So there was this increasing recognition that the stories that we were told about Columbus, about history in general, were white, male, Eurocentric, and that's a, a brilliant understanding. Yes. And um, so they started to talk about how there are these competing narratives and some narratives will win through use of force, through some other reason. And that's, that's brilliant. But then where they took that through postmodernism is because all there's competing narratives, there's, there are those competing narratives, therefore there is no objective reality below it all. Right. How can you be so stupid? At least the little reading I've done with those who study history side by side by side, Toyomi Spengler, um, a little bit of eco, um, partly through John Michael Greer, it seems that when literacy gets widespread and it goes beyond the priesthood and most of the public becomes literate, there's a pretty predictable pattern on the way to collapse. Um, and one of them is rationality feeding on itself and uh, um, and making uh, uh, going to logical extremes that it's like, what the fuck? You know, how, how, how can we get there? Why how, how would we get here from brilliant insight? Yeah, and that, may, and that makes perfect sense. Um, and I, I see it too that, you know, you can see where it begins with uh, um, there were some traditional uh, indigenous critiques of, of, um, literacy in that if your laws were written down as opposed to oral, then you would come to believe that that law was more important than the people who were speaking them. And you would lose they would lose their immediacy. And, yeah. uh, you would lose your relationship with them. That suddenly this thing in the Bible that somebody may very well have meant as a metaphor now is it becomes real. I love the line by Joseph Campbell um, that a lot of the sort of biblical literalists, would they go to a restaurant and eat the menu? Philosophy of language was my single most uh, favorite course in all my undergraduate and graduate work. And Walter Ong became an intellectual mentor for me back in the uh, late eighties. And so the difference between orality and literacy has been fundamental in my worldview ever since. And I just read something, I don't know if you read, uh, about a month ago, Paul Kingsnorth wrote something about um, that he, he sees literacy, widespread literacy, as um, we don't have any examples of a culture that develops literacy that doesn't become profoundly human-centered if they weren't already. Um, and that, that's really one of, the, one of the things I wanted to explore with you is, is the notion of anthropocentrism or human supremacy as sort of foundational to our ecological uh, cluelessness and devastation. How did the term, when you saw the invitation, how did the term post-doom land for you? And is it, you know, how do you think about that? 
but more importantly, how, what language do you use to describe your sense of a contracting or deteriorating future? For me, I need to separate two, two different things that are collapsing, and I have two entirely different responses to them. And for the collapse of biotic communities, I have, you know, I've never forgotten what an activist said to me back in the 90s. Uh, she was a pesticides activist in the Midwest, and one of the lines she said to me was, sometimes I feel like the only things that keep me going are rage and sorrow. You know, I feel overwhelming rage and sorrow and, and, and love as well, because if I didn't feel the love, then I wouldn't right. feel and sorrow. Yep. And, um, and, and so when I think about biotic collapse, I, I feel tremendous rage and sorrow and incentive to work. And, and along with those, I have, I have to add this, that, that, uh, the, the BEAR who was, uh, there's the reason I have the, the sheet up right now. Um, last night I was upstairs and I could see down and she was lying fully extended on the porch um, on her side, sleeping so deeply that her breaths were, you know, extremely long. And, yes. and I just stood there and watched her for about 10 minutes and thought about how happy that makes me. It takes me back to a campaign that, that a whole bunch of us were starting back in 1990, an environmental campaign. And before we started, we're all sitting at the table, it was like half a dozen of us. And before we started, we went around the room saying, why are you doing this? And all the answers were more or less the same for the critters, for the, and one woman got up and walked over to her desk and picked up a photograph and showed it to all of us. It was, uh, at first it just looked like a big Doug fir tree, but then when you look really closely, you can see there's a little hole in it and a little spotted owl is sticking her head out of the hole. Wow. She said, I'm doing it for her. And so, you know, when I think about just the, the devastating sorrow and think about how hard this can be to work against this cultural momentum, um, I always come back to, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this for, I'm not really doing this for humans. I'm not doing this for, you know, you could say I'm doing it for humans in the future because long-term anthropocentrism is the same as biocentrism, but I'm doing it, I'm doing it for her and yeah. I'm doing it for all the other refugees in the world who, especially the non-human refugees. And, um, and, and they are the ones who give me strength to keep going that when I start, when I start feeling bad, I was like, oh, I had some publishers dump me. Oh, this is so bad. It's like, you know what? I could be being blasted by sonic, you know, by ships with their sonic exploration in the ocean. I could be, um, you know, getting beaten by villagers in India, or I could get being killed by, poisoned by ranchers in Colorado. And, you know, I don't have it that bad. I'm a member of the oppressor species. I'm, yes. I'm among the elite of the elite. So on one hand, we have the collapse of the biosphere, which I am fighting, you know, for every scrap I can. 
because anything that remains, it's like a friend of mine says that uh, we can't predict the future. And as things become increasingly chaotic, he wants to make sure that some doors remain open. And what he means by that is if bull trout are still around in 10 years, they may be there in 100. But if they're gone in 10, they're gone forever. On one hand, we have that. And on the other hand, we have when most people talk about the doomsters or the they talk about when most people talk about doom, what they're really talking about is a collapse of human civilization. And I see that as the liberation of the planet. I'm not in any way discounting the human suffering that is already taking place and that will take place with that. I mean, I recognize, I mean, I have multiple diseases and I would be, you know, take away my, my industrial medicines and I'm, I'm dead and I'm dead in, I don't know, probably six months at most. And that's, that's okay because neither my life nor the life of any other individual human or non-human is more important than the health of the biotic community. I look at the collapse of civilization, it's like counting down to my birthday. Yeah. I mean, actually it will be counting down to the birthday of the rest of life on this planet, the literal birthday. Yeah. Talk about collapses, what does that mean? I mean, it's unfortunately it's not a one-time deal. Um, anyway, so, so that's what, that's what, uh, those are my responses to doom and post-doom. And, and really my response to all of it is it doesn't really matter. Just get off your butt and start working. I want to lean a little bit further into um, what you were just talking about, because it seems to me that there is a pretty radical distinction between civilization singular. Many people think of civilization singular rather than the, you know, 100 plus unsustainable, self-destructive, anti-future civilizations that we've seen in the last five to 7,000 years. Um, and that every civilization, every unsustainable civilization, every human-centered civilization collapses, period. End of story. Um, and so we shouldn't be surprised that this one is global. We keep pretending that we are so sentient and we're so smart and we can recognize patterns, but why is it that you, me, Catton, Tainter, Lear, Keith, and 35 other people recognize that pattern that's been staring us in the face for the last 7,000 years. Well, part of my answer is um, that line by Upton Sinclair, it's hard to make a man understand something when his job depends on him not understanding it. Right. Let's get rid of the sex, the, the sex specific language and change it, more broaden it to, it's hard to make people understand something when their entitlement depends on them not understanding it. You're one of the, one of the people that have done more to further an ecocentric, life-centered worldview um, for decades now. How, how was that? When did that occur to you? Give a sense of your, your trajectory. Like, okay, you were, you know, born in the mid 20th century. Uh, when did it begin to shift for you? Give a sense of sort of your, your, your story of coming to um, waking up to our global predicament. And uh, was it gradual, sudden, you know, give a sense of your story about that. And then how you've, how you found it emotionally dealing with so many people who are blindly following a anti-futures, human-centered perspective. I was raised Seventh-day Adventist, which was, some, there, there's some crazy in there, but one of the things they did that was great was that from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, you couldn't do things, you couldn't do non-sacred things. So I couldn't read a novel. Uh, I, I grew up never watching college football. Um, 
didn't watch cartoons, not because my family didn't allow cartoons, but because they're all Saturday morning. Right. And instead, my family would spend Saturday, or I would spend Saturday either way, out in nature and taking a lot of walks, going through drives. And then also I lived some somewhat in the country, semi-country, and you know, I spent all my time outside playing in the irrigation ditch and playing in the meadows. And then when I was in second grade, somebody put in a subdivision next to where we lived and it, you know, killed the grasshoppers, killed the meadows, killed the meadowlarks or drove them off. And I remember thinking in second grade, if they keep doing this, where, where will the others live? And I, that's the language I did have. The language I didn't have at that time is you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. Right. So I understood in my bones in second grade that we were pushing everybody out. And about the same time, I used to, there was this writer I really liked when I was a kid, William O. Steele. He wrote uh, adventure stories on the, the frontier from you know, in the, set in the 1803 or whatever. And I found myself always loving the beginnings of those books. The books were basically all the same, where some kid had out, heads out into the wilderness and has all these adventures. And at the end of the book, civilization catches up to him. And I found myself just it, 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 viscerally, is the word, I found myself viscerally loving every one of the first halves of those books and hating all the last halves. I wish I could have read them backwards. And so there was some, and you know, I, I decided as a kid, I didn't, I didn't commit to this until later, but I decided as a kid that I didn't want to have any children because, because there's too many, too many humans. And um, so it was very young for me. And then through when I was a teenager and in high school, I did well in calculus, so anybody who does well in calculus needs to go into engineering and science. And so I, I, I took a detour, but I didn't, I was just talking to a friend of mine from high school last week, and you know, I, my degree was in mineral engineering physics, which means physics with extra engineering and geology classes. Didn't like geology much. I didn't like the physics too much. I liked the beginning physics, but I was telling my friend that if I would have stayed in engineering, I did like the engineering classes. That, that was kind of fun. And, you know, maybe my whole life would have turned out differently if I would have been an engineer instead of a scientist, because that was a little bit fun. But on the other hand, I can't, my mind always jumps to context. And the only way you can be a really good engineer, I mean, engineers are great for, you know, designing an air conditioning system for a manufacturing plant or building a bridge. And what they're not so great at is figuring out whether that bridge should be built in the first place. And so I think had I stayed in engineer, had I gone into engineering, I think probably I would have had a crisis of conscience a few years later. Um, but in any case, I was still sort of, you know, I, I sort of lost my way for a while there. And then, and then, and then came back. And um, and then in my mid twenties, I was 
So this was back in the 80s. I was, I was kicking around and not really, I didn't know what to do and I wasn't an activist and I knew everything was messed up. And I, I just didn't, everything, the problems are so big, I didn't know where to start. And I right, of course. Things in my life, which is, I decided I wasn't paying enough for gasoline. So, because I didn't cover the ecological and social costs. So, small stop, step, every time I spent 10 bucks on gas, I would either A, uh, give $10 to a local environmental organization, or B, I would pay myself $5 an hour to do activism. Because it was a small thing, you know, this is how I write books too. I don't write a whole book. Writing a whole book is too scary and too big and nobody can do it. Instead, I can write a page. And then I can write another page and I can write another page. So it's the same thing. I, I started doing this. Nobody can stop civilization. It's too big. Well, great. Let's take it one little step at a time. And, you know, that's a line that my mother kept telling me that she got from her grandmother, which is inch by inch life's a sense, yard by yard life's hard. Right. Midwestern cliche, but it, uh, it's how I've written 25 books. And, and it's, it's how I keep myself working. You know, I can't, I, I have no patience for the people who say, oh, the problems are so big. It's like, okay, great, find one thing. You know, I have a friend who loves prairie dogs and she's working her heart out to protect prairie dogs and she's not doing anything about dams, but that's okay because somebody else loves dams or hates dams and is working on that. You know, we all need to do what we can do. I'm curious, what's your writing discipline? Like, do you write in the mornings? You know, how do you, what, what, how do you pattern your day to support your writing? The ideal pattern, which I did all through, say, Culture Make Believe and through a couple other books, and I've gotten busier and also time goes by faster when we're older, so it, I don't get to do this anymore. Um, but the ideal way would be I wake up. Yeah, I'm going to start when I wake up, which I wake up late. I, I stay up late and wake up late. And the first thing I would do is look over what I wrote the night before and then type it up. I, a lot of times I handwrite. Mm -hmm. I type it up and then print it out and edit it and then go for a walk, hang out, come back, print it out again, edit it again. And then by then it might be four in the afternoon, I would come up and I would hang out with my mom for from say five till nine. And then I would go home and I would do one more round of editing and I would print the thing out and I would edit by hand on it and then I would start to fall asleep and I'm thinking about the work as I go to sleep and oftentimes some more ideas will come to me and I'll wake up and I'll write those, write those, those new lines down. And I always love getting those because a lot of times in the morning, I don't even remember I wrote them. So it's like getting, <laughs> it's free writing. It's in free writing, like free writing. This is, this is writing that comes at no cost. I wake up the next morning, it's like, holy crap, who wrote this? That's how it is when I'm doing best and how it's been lately for the last few years has been that a little bit more catch as catch can. I'm pretty lucky if I can do one round. And when I do a round, it's, and also I don't, I'm not like, you know, what was it? Uh, Ernest Hemingway would get up at six every morning and write from six to nine. I'm not like that at all. A, I'm asleep at six. And B, I don't, uh, the one thing I have learned about writing for myself is I can tell the, the one thing I can tell is whether I'm writing good stuff or crap. I can't, and if I'm writing crap, I don't know how to make it good. I just know this isn't it. And so 
a lot of times I'll go to write and God, this is just crap. And I, I used to be, I would try to force my way through it, but I've learned for myself, again, this is not advice to other writers because everybody's different. But for myself, I've learned that when I'm writing crap, I need to go wash the dishes or, yeah. or, or anything else because whatever direction I've like a dog, I've lost the scent. And if you, yeah. for me, if I've lost the scent, it doesn't matter. I can, or like fishing, you know, you can, you can pound on the water all you want with your fishing pole and it doesn't matter. But basically, I'm, at that point, I need to wait. Yeah. Uh, there's this great Taoist term, Wu Wei, which means not doing, not in terms of doing nothing, but in, instead of, instead, you know, waiting. And so basically, I spend most of my time during the day, not now because we're focused on this, but, but so after we get done, then I have to ride, drive into town, do some errands. And when I'm doing those errands, the whole time, to go back to the fishing metaphor, the line's gonna be in the water. Mm-hmm. And then if there's if the bobber doesn't move, then that's that's I do the errands. If the bobber does move, I I pull over and start riding as fast as I can. Yeah. Um, there's Robert Louis Stevenson or somebody else, one of those famous writers from hundred and some years ago, said uh, something about but the, the way the way he wrote was to drift, wait, and obey. Wow, drift, wait, and obey. That's great. I mean, I've I've found that writing with with my hand with my right hand in a journal and typing and speaking, I've started using some voice activated software, uh, Dragon Speaks Naturally on my computer. And I'm noticing there are three different brain functions. Um, it really are. Uh, in fact, typing with my two hands is the least productive. That's interesting. For me, the least productive is the tape recorder. I can't do it. Yeah. Um, I've tried. I mean, especially that would be nice, you know, in the middle of the night to just not have to turn on the light and, and grab the paper. But, uh, but so that one doesn't work. That's the least productive for me. And you're right. It is different processes. And I have not yet been able to figure out why sometimes it works better to type and sometimes it works better to handwrite are absolutely different processes. Right. Absolutely. I mean, well, part of it too is just my life. I mean, for the last um, 35 years, I've been a public speaker and just in the last 18 years with Connie, I've spoken close to 3000 times and I don't use, I don't use notes. So I'm really good speaking. Well, you too. Uh, But I, I find my, I do some of my best thinking on my feet and I'm surprised by what comes out of my mouth. So to be able to capture that is sometimes useful. Anyway, back to uh, sort of this flow. Um, uh, Joanna Macy, Thomas Berry, many others speak about the big picture, the universe story, epic of evolution being a real support to their worldview and to, in these difficult times. Have you found that uh, sort of larger perspective, this evolutionary uh, uh, history, um, helpful in, in your own work, your own approach? You know, it's a really interesting question and I can respect their position. And for me, it's, it's kind of the opposite. That for me, it stems from the particular. This particular, this particular big, beautiful beast sleeping on the porch. Yeah. And um, I mean, certainly I look at the large view and I, I look at you know, the fact that there used to be passenger pigeons in the East and now there aren't. And I understand all that. And, and that moves me profoundly. And it, it, it drives 
a lot of my work to know that that the stream that is I don't know 50 yards that way should be full of salmon and so so yeah on that level yes oh this is so interesting you know what one of my problems was with physics one of my problems with physics was that I kept saying to my this is the difference between physics and engineering is that in my in our statics classes they would tell us you know how much force is on this bridge at this point and I can see it I can see a bridge I can see the the whatever they're called the the cables that hold them up and I can yeah. see I can see how the forces will will carry themselves uh, from the middle of the bridge to the to the to the shore and to the foundation. But in a lot of the advanced physics classes, I kept asking my teachers, I can't see this. I, I, I understand that you're telling me this, you know, Gauss Jordan this and there's there's something else that and I I I, I don't I don't know how this pertains to anything in the real world. Unfortunately for my grades in physics, my my teachers often couldn't relate it. They would just sort of roll their eyes and say, well, you need to know this equation because you'll use it in the future, which was a good reason for me. So, so what I'm thinking here is that, I mean, it's really interesting because, and I don't really believe in this astrology stuff, but but I'm a Sagittarius and Sagittarius are, often Sagittarius artists are known for looking at big picture, you know, like, like uh, Beethoven, you know, with the, the, the grand symphonies. Right. And, you know, that's, I mean, my work is certainly sort of grand in scope like that. Right. I will, I will certainly claim my Sag heritage there, mm -hmm. but that doesn't alter the fact that I am really motivated by, by, if, if, I can understand, you know, sort of the flow of evolution, but that doesn't move me as much as seeing a, a grasshopper. The particular, the immediate, the present, uh, and the non, more than human is where you find more motivation. I, total sense. I do too. It's just that because I've been a student or I was a student of Thomas Berry's since 1988, I also find, and Joanna Macy since 1989, um, I've found the, the, the epic of evolution told not in a human-centered way, which many do, but in a life-centered way to be um, sort of my sacred story. Okay. I okay. So here's <clears throat> say a couple things. One of them is that um, there, are, there are ideas like postmodernism that are just stupid. And then there are ideas like, you know, what you're talking about, the grand scope of evolution, that I, I want to be clear that that for me doesn't go into the stupid category. That just goes into the, wow, that's amazing, but it doesn't move me as much. Except then I'm sitting here thinking, if we go back to the particular and the places where that the particular and the, the grand scale of evolution come together, then I get really excited. Example of that is, I was sitting with a friend of mine who's a fisheries biologist out looking at the ocean, and he pointed out to me, you know, sharks have rough skin. And the reason they have rough skin is because of, it makes a difference in terms of tur turbulent and laminar flow, and they can actually swim faster. And I turned to him and I said, I know he goes to church every Sunday. So I turned to him and I said, so, you know, in, evolution is so smart. Do you believe that there is some sort of creative force uh, behind it? 
And he said, and I said, you know, because you go to church every week. He said, no, honestly, we just go to church for socialization. And uh, he said, what I believe is that there is great intelligence in time. And so that for me is a place where that sort of awe at evolution and my awe at the particular always come together. It's like B-E-A-R-S often girdle trees. They, they eat the, the inner bark. Mm -hmm. and, um, so I was asking that same friend, what is the evolutionary purpose of this? Because if something happens fairly frequently, if, if it happens, even if it's only 20% of the time, it's still, I mean, yeah. it's an ecological purpose. If it didn't, it wouldn't last. Yeah. And he said, well, where he lives, there are, it's a mixed dug fir slash uh, tan oak forest. And the dug firs grow faster, they reproduce faster, they reproduce earlier, they have every advantage, except the bears like to eat them. And so what, the, what they do there is the bears create a, uh, a mixed forest. Or here, frankly, the forest where I live, because it was clear cut in the 70s, it, so it's a nice, healthy, young, 50-year-old forest, but there aren't enough dead trees. And as you know, dead trees are more important to forests than live trees. Yes. So, you know, too bad for that particular tree that they just girdled, but it's what the forest needs. So when we, when that is what excites me is when I can see the interplay between individual action and, uh, and larger evolutionary purpose. For me, ecology and evolution are the two most sacred, to use that kind of religious language, uh, interdisciplinary bodies of knowledge. And that's where, for me, the big picture and of time and the immediate and particular of place uh, come together uh, in that intersection of ecology and evolution. And uh, I'm curious, do you have any, what, you know, if onlys, if only had you, humanity hadn't done this, or if only humanity had done this by X time, then things would be different? Or has your reinterpretation of the past moved more along the lines of inevitability? That's what I fall asleep to every night is if only, um, you know, it's interesting, which may explain the insomnia. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting, the... Uh, Okay, I don't generally, for the, for the most part, I don't generally follow the great man theory of history. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it would have been useful to, you know, it would have been nice if somebody would have pushed Hitler in front of a bus in 1922. But that would have done nothing to deal with the generalized anti-Semitism running through Europe at the time. And, you know, there are larger historical forces at work. Um, I mean, there were a lot of people who thought that the Holocaust was going to come out of France because of the tremendous anti-Semitism there. Um, but they didn't know, they didn't call it the Holocaust yet, obviously. Yeah. They didn't know what it looked like, but, um, and I mean, there are, there are, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have wished that Christopher Columbus's ships would have hit a, <laughs> a storm and sank. Yes. Um, but had they, it doesn't matter really because somebody else would have come and somebody else would come. There are these larger cultural forces. And I mean, I, I don't, 
Okay, I, before we go any further, I need to say, I, I don't think that what humans have done is biologically predetermined because the Talua lived here for 12,500 years. It is possible for humans to live in place without destroying the place. Exactly. Doesn't mean they're perfect. Doesn't mean they don't kill their neighbors. Doesn't mean they don't have fights. Doesn't mean the individuals don't have squabbles among themselves. I mean, it's not a romantic, what is it, noble savage thing where they walk around, you know, and they, they never get in trouble with each other. I remember Jeanette Armstrong, Okanagan Indian, said to me one time, you know, we have as many problems as you white people do. The big difference is that I recognize that my great-grandchildren might marry their great-grandchildren, so we have to figure out how to get along. So that's that. I think the point at which it is, okay, I sometimes think about the greatest accomplishments of the dominant culture. And really, I think the greatest accomplishment of the dominant culture is stopping evolution. That's, that's an extraordinary accomplishment. Or killing the oceans. I mean, that's, and putting a man on the moon is way easier than actually destroying all life in the oceans. It's, that's the biggest accomplishment of this culture. But I look back, and of course, I'm heavily influenced by Mumford. I think that um, one of the biggest accomplishments is what he called the mega machine which is arranging people into an organization like a machine so they're all different cogs and working together. Yeah. One of the reasons, okay, I don't think humans are inherently uh, destructive. I do think humans, like almost everybody else, are inherently contentious. Mm -hmm. And I think we get in fights. I think we get in spats and I think that there is a reason. Okay. I'm going to take a view that's extremely unpopular. And I think that traditional forms of warfare serve a really important purpose. And one of those purposes is to keep people from getting into too large of numbers. And I think our contentiousness makes it so we can live. And what's the number that people say 120 is the largest you can have a functioning community? 150. Yeah, 150. Okay. Well, no, I say 120 and we can fight about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you disagree. So I'm going to kick you out of the community or you're going to kick me out of the community. That's how it works. That's how it always worked. See, that's the thing. And this is where I find Teddy Goldsmith uh, useful is that when you look at the anthropological research of the last 500 years, it tends to be that sustainable cultures or pro-future cultures, those that don't file and degrade everything they depend upon, tend to find ways of working with that contentiousness. Well, they find ways to work with it without, the problem is that once you get into the sort of, if we step away from the mega machine language, because that's, that's sort of, uh, people might not know that language, um, it's an extraordinary thing to have a military style, top-down hierarchy such that you're able to get a million people to work together right. or even 10,000 people to work together. And not just 10,000 people to get together long enough to go to watch a rock concert or a baseball game, but to get, to get Coca-Cola, to have all these people who have all their petty intrigues and all their fights and all their spats and all their, their, their I hate this person, I like this person, all their office affairs and everything else to get them to actually work toward 
putting out this syrupy substance that's going to make everybody sick. I think the moment at which everything became inevitable was when, well, there's two moments. One of them was when, uh, when humans somehow figured out how to make these large scale organizations that you can turn into an army because that gives you a competitive advantage over all your, your neighbors whom you want to conquer. Yes. The other is, um, and you know this, we all know this, that uh, totalitarian agriculture where you convert all of the biomass on the land where you live, you convert all the land into raising food for humans, which allows your population to grow. But since you have kicked everybody else off, the, the, the land, all those other creatures, all those other beings are no longer able to serve their functions of keeping the land healthy. So the land degrades. Meanwhile, you have converted it into human beings and therefore you have enough human beings that you can make an army. And so you have a choice because your land will no longer support you. Either you collapse or you expand. Right. Problem is once you start expanding, you have a competitive advantage over your neighbors because your neighbors did not cut down the trees to make chariots or ships of war or whatever. So once you reach that point, then I think it is inevitable that you're going to conquer your neighbors and you're going to keep conquering until you run into a physical limit, which is what causes however many of those hundred civilizations, hundreds of civilizations that have previously existed, that's what causes them to collapse. They run into those physical limits. I completely agree and I've been using the same thing. I mean, not only Daniel Quinn, but also James uh, Scott, uh, his book Against the Grain, and uh, Richard Manning, same title, Against the Grain, have talked about how agriculture, totalitarian agriculture, and uh, state power that, that facilitates uh, hierarchical organizations of thousands and thousands of people um, really come, you know, how they come together in, in, in pretty devastating ways over time. And then you got the parable of the tribes that once you've got a situation like that, then it really becomes almost inevitable, if not inevitable that we end up in the world that we now have. And whether some remnant of humanity survives this bottleneck, I think there's a decent chance that that will happen. Uh, I don't think we will ever make the, uh, it's kind of like I've, I've shared this in a couple of other interviews, uh, that scene in Avatar where the Colonel says, you know, as he's contemplating, you know, blowing up uh, the Tree of Souls, I think it was, where he says, we're gonna create a, a, a crater in their racial memory that they will never forget. And I think the collapse of Homo Colossus, the extinction of Homo Colossus, the collapse of industrial civilization, I, I, I hope, <laughs> I believe, will be the crater in our racial memory that if any humans survive the bottleneck, uh, they will have, a, a, however many groups around the world are in little pockets, they will all mythologize the collapse of, of industrial civilization in a way that's really clear that that's evil, that human-centeredness, that self-destructive, where treating the, the living world as a lesser it rather than a greater thou is the fundamental source of our problem. I hope that's true. And then the other thing that gives me some optimism for the future on that is that there will never be another Iron Age because the easily accessible reserves of iron are gone. And there'll certainly never be another oil age. So there might be local outbreaks of this, but they won't be able to be as, they won't be able to metastasize the way this one has. For crying out loud, it would take, I'm presuming that the, that the planet survives in a functional way, it will take couple thousand years for trees to be big enough to make ships of war. 
The last two questions I want to touch on are one having to do with impermanence and death. Uh, Connie and I, for example, have did programs for many years on a sort of sacred evidential understanding of, immort of, of impermanence and death. Have you found uh, thinking about mortality and death from an ecological evolutionary perspective particularly helpful, or is that something, not something you think about a lot? Given that my mom died last year, it is something I think about a lot. And I just want to put this in, that, and I don't know how this fits at all, but, but you know, as, as she was, you know, it's like they say there's no atheists in foxholes, and, and you know, as my mom's dying, I'm, I'm talking to her lots and lots about, uh, you know, you can come to me in dreams, and, and talking about, you know, what experience, what, what, what may happen to her on the other side. And I'm going to write a book about this at some point. And, and one of the things that I, I need to examine is this is where like the spiritual part of me and the engineering part of me all keeps mixing together is that my problem with an afterlife is who gets to go and who doesn't mm -hmm. I mean that in terms of it's just absurd to me to think that humans would have an afterlife and nobody else would. Well, nor or the microbiome that makes our lives possible. Exactly. It's like, so what happens? Like, okay, do, does every little tadpole who lives for 20 seconds before they get killed by a back swimmer, do they get one? Do they get afterlife too? And so what about a, what about a seed that never germinated? Does that count? Is that, and what about rocks? What about rocks that gets broken in two? Does it get after? And I'm not I'm in, I, I know that you're laughing in a sympathetic way. No, I'm in more than a sympathetic way. For, for 15 years, Connie and I have been preaching and teaching on a religious naturalist, sacred realist approach to mortality and death. And there's just so much I'd love to lean in, not on this conversation, but I'd love to have another conversation with you, either you know your podcast, mine, whatever, but uh, on this topic. Because I often say that as a religious naturalist, it seems to me pretty clear that where we go to when we die is the same place we came from before we were born. And whether you speak of that as coming from nothing and returning to nothing or coming from mystery and returning to mystery or coming from God and returning to God, there's lots of different ways to talk about that. But as I say often, and I don't mean it in just a joking way, I'm actually serious, if where I go to when I die isn't the very same place every other plant and animal and bacteria have gone, I'm going to be pissed. I don't think we get to go to a special place. How has holding impermanence and death um, nourished your work and your spiritual life, especially now in the, in the context of your mom recently dying and you having open heart surgery recently? Two things. One of them is, I'm going to flip the question around and say, how does a fear of death, I think that a fear of death fuels much of this culture. And a fear of our impermanence, a fear of our, it's like Ozymandias, you know, um, or or just, you know, if I'm gonna die, I love the line by Eric Fromm, I affect, therefore I am. And so if I can, and this is true negatively as well as positively, if I can build a great dam, if I can kill the river, it's like Richard Drennan was saying to me, he was talking about how, you know, women, women create life. Women, obviously men do their part. I saw this comic the other day, I was like, you know, me and my wife had a, had a child the other day, but everybody claps and, like, oh yeah, my part was easy. It took about five minutes. That's it. Um, so yeah, men contribute obviously, but but women are the ones who actually yeah. 
carry the life and 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 bring the life to the world. And I think that a lot of the problems in patriarchy is is essentially womb envy. And there's this great line by Richard Drennan. Um, he said to me, "So if women can create life, and I can destroy it, who is the stronger?" Think that that sentence cuts to the heart of patriarchy. And so there's this notion. We understand that, you know, whether you're a vegetarian and you're going to eat lettuce, or whether you're a, a meat eater and you're going to eat a cow, we understand that somebody has to die for you to eat. Another part of the problem is that we are so divorced from death that we make it both more and less than what it is. And I, I, I was thinking about this with my mom that I am 58, and if I lived in a healthy functioning community of 120 people, and let's say, let's just say to make the math easy that everybody lives to be 60. And that means that by the time I'm 60, I have seen, oh God, I'm a physicist and I can't do this math. <laughs> I've, I've, seen, I've seen a lot of people die. Right. And, and yet my grandma died, but what happened is we've got a phone call I've known a couple people who died, but I read about that on the internet. You know, it's, it's like, we're not intimate with this process yeah. in, in, a, in a way that we, we should be. And, and I also just wanna say to all the people who say that uh, death is a wonderful, sacred, beautiful process. Oh, fuck that noise. It's horrible. It's, yeah. it's, it's a nightmare that doesn't end until they take their last breath and then it turns into a different sort of nightmare. Mm. You know, I was talking to a nurse saying to the, you know, my mom did get to die at home and that's great. Um, but my mom really wanted to figure out a way to take, to take herself out, to go out on her own terms. Right. And I wish that that would be as easy as yes, it, it should be, yes. and, but it's not. And in any case, I told, I told my mom's nurse, you know, I wish she would have been able to die with dignity. And the nurse turned back to me and said, I don't think most of us do. And I started thinking about that. And that's really true. In wild nature and in life in general, most of us die pissing and shitting. You know, most of us die. But here's a good thing. And this has given me so much sauce. I know I'm going way the hell off track. My mom and I were in a terrible car wreck in 1983. This has given me more solace than almost anything else in the world. Um, we were driving at night and there was a overturned load of plywood, uh, overturned semi-load of plywood in the highway with a black tarp. And I hit it going 55. I didn't even, oh, I didn't even see it, you know, I, and well, so here was my experience of the accident. I'm driving along and it's Snake River Canyon, Canyon on the right, Snake River on the left. It goes around a little farmhouse. There's a car driving out of the farmhouse. I glance over at them. It ends up that was a sheriff's deputy coming out of a prayer meeting. Can't ask for a better witness than that. Um, had seen the truck weaving down the highway and then flip over. It's two-lane highway. Anyway, so I look up in my rearview mirror to see if this guy's going to plot behind me because he had his brights on. And then I look back down. I see a black tarp. I wonder why the highway department put the black tarp across the highway. And then I realize, oh, it's because there's been a rock, a rock slide. And then I drive carefully around all the different rocks that fell down on the rock slide. 
I pull the car to a stop, and then I get out of the car to go back to help people who are hurt in the wreck. And then I heard a voice saying, I can't move, I can't move. And then I realized that was my voice. And then like in a movie, zip, I sit back in. That was all hallucination. But what had actually happened is I ran into the thing, the steering wheel wrapped around my chest. And okay, so here's the point is I have by that, and this is what gives me so much solace. I'm absolutely convinced that when a gazelle is caught by a cheetah, it spends its last 30 seconds thinking that it is still running. It, I tripped, flipped once, got back on my feet, got to run left, got to run right. And by the time it realizes, by the time the shock gets over, it's like 90% dead. I can't tell you how much less, how much that has changed my perspective on the terror of being a prey. Otherwise, because I just, I just couldn't bear it otherwise. I mean, I recognize that life feeds off life and we, we need to do all that, but the last, I mean, it's, it's, uh, life was too scary otherwise. So in some ways, extreme trauma short circuits part of the standard Elizabeth Kubler-Ross stage and dumps you right in the lap of acceptance. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.